Revelation 13 is our study this morning, uh, but I will tell you that we will be in Daniel chapter 7 a lot. Uh, we'll be referencing that quite a, a bit, so you may want to keep you know, something there to find it very quickly because I'll be referencing it uh, very early in the message and quite a bit throughout the message because there are great similarities between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 that we need to look at. So Revelation chapter 13. Daniel 7 is the other place we'll be. Now, when we look at uh, the book of Revelation, remember the whole theme is that the king is coming. And uh, as Jesus is moving in on that which is rightfully his, he is taking back more and more ground until, of course, he will return and he will finish that work. Uh, But we are in the midpoint of the great tribulation, the halfway point of those last seven years. And John in chapter 12, he started off the chapter by saying he saw a symbol, a mega sign, a great wonder in heaven. And, and so this signified that beginning in chapter 12, we were moving into a symbolic section of Scripture. And in these symbols of chapter 12, John is seeing the final world stage before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Chapter 12 showed us the first four major players on that final stage. And as the dragon turns from his failed effort to wipe out Israel, the dragon uh, being Satan and the woman being Israel, those are the two of the first four symbols. As he turns from his failed effort to wipe out Israel at the end of chapter 12, uh, in chapter 13, we're going to see he summons a fifth player, his false king, to make war on the believers who are there during the tribulation. And so this morning, we will meet the Antichrist. So chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, and great authority. Here we see that John says here, I stood upon the sand of the sea. All of the oldest manuscripts read, he stood upon the sand of the sea, referring to the dragon. And that seems to fit with the end of chapter 12, where that is our last context here. The dragon was wroth with the woman, and he leaves off chasing, pursuing the woman to make war with the remnant of her seed. Uh, those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Contextually, it makes sense to say, and he stood upon the sand of the sea, because he's the one who's going to raise up this beast out of the sea. John says, I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now, Daniel had a very similar dream, uh, but it showed four creatures emerging from the sea. Uh, Daniel 7 verse 2 mentions during turbulent times, the four winds of heaven were striving with one another. Now, we know from Daniel 7 verse 17 that the sea represents the earth. In Daniel 7, 17, we read it in our scripture reading, the angel says to him, these great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. So we know that these are, that the sea represents what comes out of earth. It doesn't come from heaven. So 
these four beasts, these four creatures that Daniel sees, when we read through there, uh, Daniel 7, you can get my study on that to go into detail. I won't be able to do that this morning. But they represent the four world powers that will be around during the end times. John sees the time here in chapter 13 of Revelation when the fourth beast of Daniel's vision is at the height of its power. For it says here, it has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, the word here for beast usually refers to a wild animal, but Paul used it in Titus 1.12 for wicked people. And so uh, this is not a literal beast here. This is a symbol that's going to point to something that we've already seen, that the scriptures have already detailed, a king, a kingdom. And so it says it has seven heads and ten horns. Now, these are similar descriptions, uh, a similar description to Satan's description in chapter 12, verse 3, and there appeared another wonder, another sign, symbol in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. So, it is similar to the description of Satan. However, the crowns here, it says that in verse 3 on Satan, seven crowns upon his heads. But the crowns are not upon the heads, they're upon the horns here in chapter 13, verse 1. So, and the heads have, have a blasphemous name on them. Uh, so this does not match the description entirely of Satan. It has some small differences. It does, however, match the description that we have from Daniel of his fourth beast. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and it stamped, trampled the residue with the feet of it. The residue is the other things that were near it, the other three kingdoms that were concurrent with it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, not before it in time, but before it in its presence. You know, when it says, come before the Lord with, you know, singing and praise, that's the word before here, concurrent with it. I, I know the traditional interpretation of uh, Daniel 7 is that it's a recapitulation of Daniel chapter 2. You got Babylon and then followed by Medo-Persia and then, you know, followed by Greece and then eventually Rome. But Daniel 7, there are numerous things here that cannot, that means, I think it makes it impossible for that to be the correct interpretation. These are the four kingdoms that will be on the earth during the end times before this beast in its presence, and he will trample them. Verse 8, and I considered the horns, Daniel 7, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking Great things, King James says, but it means boastful things, pompous things, blasphemous things. So the beast that we see here in Revelation 13 verse 1 isn't another symbol for Satan. It's a symbol of something different, a symbol of the strongest world power during the end times, a revived Rome. In Revelation 17 verse 9, it explains this to us in very clear terms. Revelation 17, verse 9, and here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, I've been told that the New York City also was founded upon seven hills. 
However, traditionally, the city that was founded upon seven hills is Rome. And I guarantee you that no one that John was originally writing to was thinking of New York City. So while New York City may have its problems and may be very Babylon-like, I don't know, I haven't been there in a very long time, I hear rumors. While that may be the case, that is certainly not what John has in mind. John has the city of Rome, the one that this is, the, you know, it's not like, you know, you know, John is saying, you know, I'm being sneaky here. I know all of y'all are thinking Rome, but I really mean this city. Everyone's going to immediately know what he's talking about. He says, he who has wisdom, that mind that has wisdom can know what this means. It's Rome. Now, this beast in Revelation 13, it has experienced a few changes from the way Daniel 7 describes it at the beginning of the end times. Instead of one horn speaking blasphemous things like Daniel 7 verse 8 and Daniel 7 verse 25 says, now we see that all the horns have taken the blasphemous name upon them. All the other kings have taken that blasphemous name as well. We also note here that this beast emerges from the sea when it's already been in existence for three and a half years. That gives us a clue that something happened to this beast, that it had to be reemerged, it had to re- be resummoned onto the scene, most likely by the dragon. In addition to that, we see that these horns are now wearing ten crowns, something they did not wear in Daniel. The ten crowns signify that they now have some type of royal authority. Daniel 7, 24 and Revelation 17, verse 12 explain that the ten horns are ten kings over this revived Roman Empire. Revelation 17, 12, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive power, authority to rule, royal authority as kings, one hour with the beast. So there are some differences because we're seeing this beast three and a half years into its existence. Now, in addition to this, we also see that this is an empire that has absorbed, just like Daniel 7 predicted, the other three world powers by this point. Look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. If we turn back to Daniel chapter 7, we will note some interesting things. When we look at this first empire in Daniel 7, in verse 4 of Daniel 7, it says, the first was like a what? A lion. And it had eagle's wings. Verse 5, the second beast. And behold, another beast, a second, was like to a a bear. Verse 6, after this I beheld, and lo, another like a, a leopard. So we see here that while these four kingdoms are concurrent with the revived Roman Empire at the beginning of the end times, they are no longer independent. The angel's prediction to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 verse 23 has now actually occurred. In Daniel 7 23, the angel tells Daniel when he asks him, I want to know about this fourth beast. The angel says, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. We saw that earlier that when Daniel had the vision, he says, he, what did it break in pieces? The residue, the remaining other world powers around it. 
So this is an empire that by this point, three and a half years in, has absorbed the other three world empires into its fold. And thus, that means at the halfway point of the great tribulation, Satan's plan will fully be in motion. There will be a false messiah and a false kingdom with Satan as the power behind it. Now, this is likely why the description of Satan, the dragon, and the description of the Antichrist, this beast, are so similar, even though they do have differences. For it says the dragon gave him, this beast, his power and his seat and great authority. Satan is not omnipotent, for sure. He's no match for the Lord, but he does have supernatural ability, and he will give that to the Antichrist. Satan does have a throne, and he will give that to the Antichrist. And Satan does have great authority. Paul called Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4 the God of this age, and he said that Satan used his authority to blind the eyes of the lost. And so what the enemy is going to do is he's going to infuse all of the resources he has amassed over centuries of planning to bring his plan into being through this empire, this revived Roman empire, and through the Antichrist. The one who takes the offer that Jesus refused. Remember when Satan during Jesus' temptation took him up onto a tall mountain, a high mountain, and it says he offered him, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the, the treasures of it, all the riches of it. And he said, all of this I give to you if you just bow down and worship me, right? And Jesus rejected it. He, you know, he said, no, it is written. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God only and him only shall you serve, right? The Antichrist will get the same offer and he will say, I take it, I take it. Now, as John is watching Satan raise up this creature and give it all of his resources, he notices something interesting. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, when it mentions here that I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, what we have to understand here is that the seven heads don't just represent a place, seven hills. In Revelation 17, verse 10, it goes on after it says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Verse 10 says, and it also represents something else. There are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And of course, I don't need to explain that because that's self-explanatory. We'll get into identifying what that verse means when we get to chapter 17. For now, what we need to understand as we're going through chapter 13 is that the words beast, head, and horn, they are used interchangeably for both the entire kingdom and its ruler, okay? If we don't understand that, we'll get confused. So when it's, it's dealing with, we say, the beast here or the horn or the head, Sometimes it's referring to the empire, sometimes it's referring to the Antichrist, sometimes it's referring to both, okay? Because the symbols refer to both, according to Scripture. Now, 
Before Satan raises his kingdom back up and goes all in with his plan, John noticed that something happened to its ruler. He says, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded. The word there means having been slaughtered or murdered. I saw one of his heads like it had been murdered to death. How do you get murdered to death? I thought that's kind of self-explanatory in the word murder. But the phrase there, to death, means he was murdered into the process of dying. He was killed into the process of dying. In other words, there is a killing blow. He is dying. There's no way to bring him back. Uh, It's going to end in death. Now, it does not tell us who deals this killing blow to the Antichrist, but verse 14 tells us that the murder weapon was a sword. It says there that another beast that we'll meet next week, called the month of May and June beastly months, it mentions that in verse 14 that this other beast suggests that they make an idol to the first beast which had the wound by a sword but lived. So the murder weapon was a sword. It's kind of like Clue. Some of you are old enough to know what that game is. It will wound the Antichrist in such a way that he's in the process of dying with no hope of rescue. And yet, it says, and his deadly wound was healed. Again, it doesn't tell us who heals the Antichrist, but my guess is Satan because he's the one who summons him out of the sea. Whoever does it, the miracle causes the entire world to follow the Antichrist. And all the world wondered after the beast. The word there means to admire and follow after. When this guy is brought back from the dead, all of the world will admire and follow after the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? (laughs) Their idea is, how can you kill a man who won't die? This is the ultimate mockery of the one who did rise from the dead, is it not? I don't personally believe that Satan has the power or the ability to raise people from the dead. The Bible says about Jesus, in him was life and that life was the light of men, right? He has life in and of himself. Satan does not have that. I don't personally believe that. I might be wrong, but that's my personal thought. That being said, I do believe that Satan could allow it to get to the brink of a place where, you know, you know the, the flat line goes and it's over. And then, boom. You know, he heals them and he comes back. He does have the ability to do, do that. He has the ability to do the miraculous, so perhaps he does that. I don't know. I've heard people say he really resurrects, whatever. Um, either way, this is the ultimate mockery, though, of the one who did rise from the dead. And what's interesting is that while some did worship the Father and, his, and the Son when Jesus rose from the dead, the majority of people today consider it a fairy tale wishful thinking, how easily the world will embrace counterfeits. Jesus wasn't lying in John 5, 43 when he said, I'm come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. But there will come a day when one comes in his own name and him you will receive. He was prophesying about the Antichrist. Him you will receive. 
Now, the difference between the real and the counterfeit is their message. Jesus came pointing to the Father, right? The Antichrist will point to himself. Jesus described himself as meek and humble. The Antichrist is repeatedly said to be filled with pride. Jesus told us we needed to deny ourselves. The Antichrist will tell everyone, indulge yourselves. And that will be the perfect message for those who do not want to change who are looking for someone to save them from this awful God who's been judging them for three and a half years, who everything they've tried, it hasn't worked. Someone who now has the ability to defeat this God because he overcame death. They will throw all their weight, all their trust behind this man, this false king. And so verse five says, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, And power was given unto him to continue for 42 months. Him, the head that was healed, was given a mouth speaking great things. It means important, surprising things. These are not things that he says in passing. These are things that are said publicly. These are things that are said officially, openly, and shockingly because they are blasphemies, words that defame or insult God. And power, the right to do this, God will give him the ability to do this It says for 42 months, for three and a half years, the remaining time of the great tribulation. And at first, the Antichrist will seem to be unstoppable in Satan's war against believers that he was going to engage in in verse 17, and the reason he's brought the Antichrist back to life is to engage in this war against believers. And at first, he'll seem like he's unstoppable. Look at verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world." The Antichrist will defeat anyone who stands with the Lord for these three and a half years. It starts off by saying that the Antichrist will begin campaigning against the Lord. The word here to open his mouth, the word open there means to begin to speak in a formal and systematic manner. The Antichrist will campaign against the Lord. He will defame the Lord's name, his character. He will defame his tabernacle, his dwelling place, the domain of heaven. And he will defame anyone who has trusted the Lord through the years, those who dwell in heaven. And thus he'll defame the scriptures because that contains many of the lives of people who dwell in heaven at this point in time. And this will not be sneaky propaganda or behind-the-scenes politics. This will be an open call to reject the Lord with a threat to exterminate anyone who will follow him. And it was given unto him, this is Satan, in his furor at not being able to stop the fleeing Israelis, as furor turns against the, the remnant of her seed, the believers in Christ during this time. He, he, it will give, he, this is his whole reason for bringing the Antichrist back from the dead in a sense. It was given unto him to make war. The word there means to engage in open warfare. Again, this is no backdoor thing, no snatching people in the night. This is open warfare. It will be very clear what he's doing. Everyone will know what he's doing, and all of these folks will support what he's doing. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, to be victorious over, to conquer them. Now, 
this cannot be the church because Matthew 16, 18 makes it very clear. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It can't be the church. In addition to that, the gates of hell are a whole different object than earthly objects. Our war is not a physical war. Our war is against principalities and powers, right? Rulers of this present darkness. Our weapon is the sword of the Spirit. Our weapon is prayer, right? So this is a different group, not us, the tribulation believers. And by stamping out any kind of public faith in Christ, the Antichrist will bring into being Satan's dream. Power was given him. The right to rule was given unto him over all kindreds and all tongues and all nations. By stamping out any kind of public faith in Christ, the Antichrist brings into being Satan's dream. A world where every ethnic group, every language, and every nation are united into one kingdom in one faith, under one king. Now, this is why you hear Bible teachers talk about a one-world government and a one-world religion in the end times. That won't come about until the midway point of the Great Tribulation, but it is coming. And the unifying element of this one-world kingdom, one-world faith, will be a rejection of God, a rejection of heaven, and a rejection of those who follow the Lord. It is a worldwide commitment to this man who has, in their minds, successfully defeated the Lord, heaven, and those that follow him by coming back from the dead. And so, verse 8, all that dwell upon the earth, remember that's Revelation's key phrase for unbelievers, the earth dwellers, all those who have made this their home, they shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Of course, any surviving believers will not worship him, but all those who are lost will worship him. Now, every noun here is plural, referring to this, these people, kindreds, nations, tongues, earth dwellers, names, but there is one singular word here, and it's the word whose. And that means that each person, no matter how much they're just one conglomerate thing now, each individual who makes this choice bears responsibility for their actions. No one made them do this. They chose it. And by such a choice, they are excluded from salvation. Their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Now, that phrase, are not written, it's in the perfect tense, which means have never been written. The books that we're describing here in a second that we'll get into can be a little bit confusing. You have a, one set of books that contains all of our deeds. You have another book called the Book of Life. And the Book of Life can be a little bit confusing in Scripture because, for example, it talks about how their names are not blotted out of the Book of Life. And then it mentions a group here that their names are never written in the Book of Life. So, like, there are some who take the viewpoint that, you know, uh, everyone's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and then if they die without receiving Christ, it's erased. And then there are others who take the view that say, well, no one's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and it gets put in when they come to Christ, you know? And then there are those who say, well, no, God knows whose name's going to, who's going to receive Christ, and he puts all their names in the Book of Life before any of them are born. The problem with that, of course, is well, then why is the mention of it being blotted out, and why is there a mention of those never being written in? It just seems confusing at times, and to be frank, I don't have an answer for you. So, sorry to disappoint you. 
These are things, of course, from God's perspective that we will fully understand when we get to heaven that are slightly difficult for us to wrap our minds around here. The important part, though, about these books is what they contain, because human beings will be judged by the contents of two sets of books. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, after Jesus at the end of his thousand-year reign, surrenders the kingdom to the Father, and this heaven and this earth are undone. It says in verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, stand before God, and the books, plural, were opened, and then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, plural, according to their works. So, you've got this first group, which is the books, and all of our works are written in that. Now, (laughs) if any of us were judged just on the basis of those books, we'd all be guilty, right? Nobody has any hope of salvation. If that's the only books that were opened, we're in trouble. But the second book, the book of life, contains the names of those who have repented of their sins and believed on the Lord Jesus. And having your name in that book is the only way to become a citizen of heaven, okay? Now, The fact that we've got a set of books with our deeds that condemns us, and then another book that we can be saved by with our name being in there, shows that God is not unfair to judge people. In contrast to being unfair, God has gone to every length to make a way for every human being to be reconciled to Him. To reject the way that God offers is my own fault. It's my own pride and my own stubbornness. Now, some might object. I've heard objections like this from unbelievers. Why does he get to have a book? Why can't I have my own book? Well, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the end of it explains why you don't get your own book. You're not the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why is that important? Because you and I do not qualify for the position of judge and jury. None of us do because we don't even live up to the standards we come up with ourselves. I hear people all the time say, you know, well, you know I believe that God just wants us to do this. God just wants us to, to try our best. Okay, that's great. Do you always try your best? I, I think that God just doesn't want us to hurt anyone as long as we don't hurt anybody. Okay, have you never hurt anybody? Have you ever hurt somebody? Oh, you have. Sounds like you've got troubles by your own book. doesn't matter what the standard is. You, you, you know, <laughs> well, the, my favorite pe- book that people, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Uh, I, I, I kind of vote down on your book, so it's not a very high standard, you know. It's not, not very difficult to meet that standard, so. We don't even meet the standards we make up for ourselves. Well, the excuse you hear then, well, yeah, but nobody's perfect correct. (laughs) And that's why no one but Jesus is qualified to have a book, because He is perfect. He was perfect. And yet, before the first parts of the world were laid down in creation, knowing what we would do to ourselves, the one who makes no mistakes and never will make mistakes, the one who never fails and will never fail, decided that laying down his life for our sins was the only way we could be rescued from ourselves. Now, a lot of people don't like that concept. 
And if that concept bothers you, then you are adopting the mentality of the Antichrist. You say, that's harsh. No, it's true. Look at John, 1 John, the, not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John, right near Revelation. Just turn left a few pages. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. I'll probably read verse 2 as well. I'll give you a little context. John is dealing with the... Christians he's writing to, trying to show them to, you know, how they can recognize the difference between truth and error. And he explains, verse 2, hereby do you know the spirit of God, the truth, the spirit of truth. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, from God. So how do you recognize the truth? You know, what is the spirit of truth, the mindset of truth, the attitude of truth? Well, it confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that's the truth. That's the spirit of, of the Lord. Verse 3, and every spirit, every mindset, every attitude, every approach, every philosophy, every source that speaks that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, I've heard people tell me and say, well, I know this person is from God because they believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus, you know, that, that he became a man and he, he, he's, you know, that he came and he's our Savior. Okay. Well, we read another section of James that says that the, the demons believe that and they're not saved. That is not what John's talking about there. Certainly the incarnation in his, is in his mind. But it's not just the, the physical aspect of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh. It's the whole idea of why the incarnation is necessary. You see, the Antichrist ideology is that there is no God who became a man to save us because I'm qualified to come up with the way and the means to save myself. The Antichrist ideology is that I don't need a Savior. I don't need God to become a man. I'm fine on my own. I've got my own way. I've got my own book. I've got my own standard. And if I live by that, I'll be fine. Maybe if I keep it some of the time. The Antichrist mindset, the attitude, the approach to life, the philosophy is, I'm fine on my own. I can save me. I don't need to be saved. I don't need God to become a man. If you're ever crazy enough to want to take a journey into the evil mindset of the Antichrist, read Nietzsche's book titled, The Antichrist. In that book, it's a walk down a dark path. I see people defend Nietzsche all the time. Oh, he was misunderstood. You know, after people keep taking the teachings that someone has and keep doing awful things with it, you have to ask the question. Actually, I think they probably understood him really well. He claims, he doesn't claim that man is morally good or morally bad by Christian standards. What he claims is that the Bible standards are inaccurate. They're weak. Man needs to embrace who he is, that his depravity is his morality, and that by embracing his depravity, that's the only thing that gives him the power to lay hold to his right to seize power, that might makes right. And that is exactly what we see here. Can't kill this guy. He can defeat God. He, he can stand up for us. 
We don't need to give in to this God. We don't need to give in to this Jesus. We can keep doing what we're doing, everybody. We can keep going the way we're going. We can set up our own utopia and everything will work out great. We just got to follow this guy. And that's what's going to happen here. Every unbeliever will reject Christ and worship the beast who is leading them to victory. Now, I want you to take a step back for a second and think about all the things that you see right now that anger you, like the evil things you see, the wrong things you see in our culture, in our society, in our government, you name it. And think about how upset that makes you. Think about how you want to take action about those things. Now, it's hard to see evil triumph, right? It's hard to see evil persist, right? Can you imagine what it'd be like to be these guys living during this time? Seeing these things? To be a, you know, a believer during this time? And so, because it will be tempting for those who follow the Lord to try to fight fire with fire, to take matters into their own hands, to do things on their terms instead of God's way, maybe even to go out on their own terms instead of being slaughtered like sheep. Because of that temptation, John has a warning and an exhortation to those who are living during these times. He says in verses 9 and 10, if any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The word here, if, in verse 9 is the conditional clause of assumed reality. In other words, John is assuming that someone living during this time is reading this book. A believer during this time is reading this book. They are hearing his words. And he says, if that's the case, which I assume it is, he says, then let him hear. You must listen to and respond appropriately to what I'm about to say. He says to them, guys, this isn't make-believe. Everything we are reading about right now is going to happen. We are reading right now history in advance. And so we need to pay attention to what it says and respond correctly to it. And what does he say? What's his message? He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. That phrase, he that leads, is a horrible translation. It's another conditional clause, so it should start with the word if. If someone not leads but is gathered together as a prisoner of war, that's what captivity means. If someone is gathered together as a prisoner of war, well, into captivity as a prisoner of war he goes. He that kills, another conditional clause. If someone with the sword kills, then must, it is necessary, it is inevitable for them to be with the sword killed. In light of that knowledge, he says here, in this, in properly applying that exhortation, that warning, is the patience, the endurance. It means to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. They are in very difficult circumstances, and this truth will help them to bear up under it. Herein is the endurance, and not 
the faith of the saints in their personal faith, but when we see the faith here, it refers to the body of doctrine that believers hold to. Here is their faith. This is the basis of their faith. Here is what they believe, what the saints hold to. What John is saying is, guys, it's going to get very, very, very bad. But understanding this will help you endure and hang in there. It will help you remain faithful by clinging to the truths of our faith no matter what happens. These tribulation believers cannot give into anger, into hatred, into retribution, or some false sense of standing up for Jesus. Their job for three and a half years has been to make disciples while there was still time for people to receive Christ. We've come to the point in the great tribulation where that time has run out, and all that is left is to be martyred or to hide until Jesus comes back. And so John says, do not try to oppose this guy. The Lord will not help you in that. Finish strong. Finish what you started. Now, this is not us, of course. And while we aren't all called to martyrdom or hiding, we are all called to make disciples while there's still time. And if we go on the offensive against unbelievers and abandon our call to make disciples, to save something here or build something here, then we will fail to accomplish the Great Commission. Our goal, very stated clearly by Jesus, is to go on the offensive against the real enemy, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this present darkness. We are called to, the Bible says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I can promise you the gates of hell are not, uh, while Jesus was referring to an actual place, the idea is there's nothing really there. It was, the, the Greeks believed that there was this big, huge pit. There were three, they believed there were three entrances into the underworld where Jesus preached this message um, in the book of John. When he preached the message about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, it was at the place where one of these pits was, one of these shafts. And so he was explaining that it's a spiritual battle there. And he says, and it will not, these, you're going to knock down hell gates is what he's saying. We are called to go into all the world and to fight these spiritual battles so we can make disciples of all men, to rescue the perishing while we still have time. And so here's my, my challenge to you guys. <laughs> if the tribulation believers can be challenged not to take retribution against their enemies in a time where their enemies can't even be saved, in a time where they can't repent and believe, how much more so should we bless those who persecute us, love our enemies, pray for those who despitefully use us in a time when they still can be saved? John said that the mindset of Antichrist is already in the world. This idea that there's no God who became a man to save us because we're qualified to, to come up with a way and the means to save ourselves, that we can be the God of our lives, that we can be the ruler of our own kingdom, that we can set up a perfect place without Jesus, without God and his ways. John said that mindset's already here. We don't need to wait for this guy to come onto the scene for the mindset to be here. And as Christians, we come dangerously close to adopting that mentality when we ignore Scripture in order to take matters into our own hands. When we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting what God has already said. I have watched men that I respected as Bible teachers in the last decade 
completely abandon some of the truths of Scripture to say we're fighting some fight that Jesus never called us to fight. I've heard men who have been well-respected Bible teachers come out and say, well, doing it Jesus' way isn't working. We need to fight fire with fire. And every time the church has done that, even if they have destroyed the thing that they hated, the thing they thought was evil, they just set up something else that was evil. Because you can't build God's kingdom with the Antichrist mentality. So let's not do that. (laughs) Let's not lean on our own understanding. Let's cling to God's word. Let's live out what we believe, just like John tells these tribulation saints. Amen? Let's all stand. I realize this is not a happy message. I realize these are challenging things. I know even for some of you out there, maybe you're thinking, oh man, I don't like this end time stuff, you know. I don't need to know about all the Antichrist, whatever, you know. I I get it. I I know some people love this, like they get into it, like, well, this is so cool, it's so interesting, this is gonna happen, and they wanna put the pieces together, and then others are just going, I I just kinda wanna learn about Jesus. That's fine, we're all different. There's no one's right or wrong in that, okay? But all scripture is given by inspiration of God for practical purposes. There are applications here for us. It's why we need to study these things. And so I know this wasn't an easy message. I can't imagine ever talking about the Antichrist and his mindset would be a happy message. It's a bad thing. But we have this little interjection that John gives to believers in the midst of this bad thing he's describing by saying there is application for us here. And so my encouragement to you is let's be those who apply this the application to our lives. Let's be those who, you know, really come out from among them and be separate, you know, and and adopt the mind of Christ, you know, who did not consider holding on to everything that was precious and special and awesome and the way it should be. He didn't consider that worth holding on to if it meant losing us. He laid it down and then laid down his life that we might be saved. So Jesus, we're so grateful for your example of of, of how we're to be. That we, You call us, I want you to have this mindset, the same mindset that you had, Jesus. So Lord, we, we need that. We, Lord, I know I get so frustrated. I get so angry when I see evil. I see these things. and You just want to put an end to it all. And then I have to remember, Lord, that you're God. And Lord, you could have very easily, you told Peter, I don't need your sword. I could have just Call a legion of angels and wipe everybody out. But Lord, your heart is not to do that. Your heart is to save. So Lord, that's what we need. We need that heart, that mindset, that nothing around us, nothing in our personal lives, nothing around us is worth holding on to if it means somebody doesn't receive Christ as a result. So Lord, burden us for the lost. Burden us with a passion. Lord, to be like you. To see your love for us in a deeper capacity that we might would be compelled like Paul to preach the gospel, to love our enemies, to lay down our lives. Thank you for doing that for us first, Jesus. We give ourselves to do the same in Jesus' name, amen.